0: Welcome to Defiance, today I'm talking to Tae Yong Ho, the former Minister of the North Korean Embassy in London, who defected to South Korea in 2016. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin, itself an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudo-anonymous inventor, Satoshi Nakamoto, as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom, and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.
1: The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds.
0: We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good to nice. see you again, Mr. Tay.
1: Okay, nice meeting you. Are you well? Pretty well, yes.
0: So obviously it's great to get you on the podcast. It's a new show that's launching. After meeting you in Oslo, I spoke to Alex and I said I would really love to interview you. Mm. And in doing my research, I didn't realize at the time that you were the Deputy Ambassador to London, which is obviously a nice fit because (laughs) I live near London and you were telling me before you and your children are big fans of London.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes. I served two times in London, in North Korean Embassy in London. I served from uh, 2004 until 2008 and then my second term was 2013 and 2000 until 2016 until I defected from North Korea. So I have many friends in uh, London. All of my children's friends are still in London. So I, London is actually my second hometown.
0: Oh, right. And did you get into English football?
1: Of course, you know. Who was your oh, team? Yeah. Chelsea? Actually, I support this menu. <gasps> uh, maybe it, it is disappointment to you i'm liverpool you're liverpool so we're
0: big rivals (laughs) (laughs) we're big rivals right well look fantastic to to meet you again and to talk to you i'm very intrigued and fascinated by north korea Uh, yeah it's there's so many different areas that you can explore and talk about but obviously i'd like to find out more about it from your perspective because I read something about you that you are now determined to pull down the regime but there was a time where obviously you worked for the regime so it feels like you've experienced being on both sides of the fence. So how has that been from you going from being somebody who worked for the regime to now somebody being an activist trying to essentially end the regime?
1: Right. Oh actually it was really a long evolution period. I was taught in North Korea, and I was totally uh, brainwashed by a North Korean education system. And my parents and my grandparents were really a true loyal to North Korean system. They really strongly believed in North Korean system. So when I was young and when I was young man I really truly believed in North Korean system but that kind of belief changed when I was firstly posted in Copenhagen in Denmark in, uh, in, Denmark in 1996 because the education I received was that the capitalist countries of full of beggars in the streets. The exploitation by capitalists was so extreme that the riches are getting richer every day while the poor are getting poorer every day. Maybe to some extent that is the true, But, you know, the reality which I was shocked about was that there was a certain level of a welfare system in a capitalist countries as well. And I was taught that North Korea is the only socialist paradise in the world. But when I compared the welfare system of Western Europe and North Korea, I concluded that a welfare system in capitalist countries of Western Europe were much better than that of North Korea. So that was a kind of start of, you know, the disbelief and suspicions but this kind of, you know, the uh, suspicion and double thinking do not actually arrive at my, you know, decision of defection. Uh, so it took a really a long, you know, the process. The main reason uh, really happened when my sons in London grew up as, uh, you know, the young man So, for instance, when my sons entered in British high school education and the college in London, they learned about the concepts of human rights, of freedom, democracy, the history they were taught in British schools were quite different from what they were taught in North Korea. And when my sons went to British schools, you know, they came to make friends with a British boys and usually at the first, you know, few months, British boys always tried to make, you know, fun of my boys. Something like, asking questions like, Hi, how North Korean children, you know, are getting along without internet? Or, how is the North Korean children getting along without Facebook? Or, Of these things, you know. Is there any internet game in North Korea? The boys in London, you know, Mm -hmm. they're really fussy. Yeah. That's why they bombard my sons with all these questions and they try to make my sons very difficult.
0: Right. Uh, But let me ask you, when you first moved to Denmark, obviously you had grown up in North Korea. Yes. How old were you when you went to Denmark?
1: Oh, at that time it was 1996. 1996. So actually, I was 34. In the age of 34, as a North Korean diplomat, still was regarded as a very young you know, generation.
0: Of course, and in those 34 years, you were essentially brainwashed with the socialist utopia of North Korea. How aware were you of the outside world? And how much of a shock to the system was it when you first got off the plane and settled in Denmark?
1: Yes, when I was in Denmark, I was instructed to try my best to get a food aid from Danish government and NGOs like Danish Red Cross for North Korean uh, the people. At that time, the famine was really great in such North Korea. So whenever I approached the Danish government or NGOs, they were actually very generous. Denmark at that time was one of the big donors for North Korea. But at the same time, they kept me asking the questions like, why North Korea spent hundreds of billions of dollars on the defense industry or building of mausoleum while neglecting its people, you know, to die. So these kind of questions and debate with the Danish, you know, the government officials and enjoyed people kept me very, you know, the difficult.
0: Right. Okay, and also, you obviously had quite a prestigious job in North Korea. Of course, you seem to have a privileged education. Sure, is that because there is a certain class system that existed in North Korea, or was it due to connections with your family or your own hard work? How did that? How did you come to get such a prestigious uh, job? Yes, uh,
1: that kind of that is really a combination of my hard work and also, you see, my lucky. For instance, you know, North Korea is a system based on the class division. The whole North Korean population are divided into three classes. The ruling class is called core class, to which I belonged to. The second class is called wavering, and the third class is hostile. The majority of North Korean people Uh, belong to Wavering class and I belong to a core class, which is around 10 to uh, 15 or 20% of North Korean population. And I was very lucky because my grandparents and my parents were, you know, core class. But the opportunity did not go well to all of core class. So I also worked very hard and at the age of 12, I was lucky to enter the Pyongyang School of Foreign Language Studies. I entered to that school because of my good, you know, examination marks. But that school was only open to the children of core class. But on the meanwhile, not all the children of core class can enter that uh, school because the capacity of that school was so, you know, limited. So. I would rather say that my success of my childhood was a combination of my good luck to be born in core class and also my hard work. Okay, so I've looked into
0: your past. Obviously, you had your time in Denmark and then you had your time in London, as you said, two periods. And during your second period, you were recalled to Pyongyang, but you made a decision to defect. Was this preemptive? Like, were you concerned about why you were being recalled to Pyongyang?
1: Oh, the the story really uh, went on like this. In March of 2016, the 12 of North Korean waitresses working in China all of a sudden defected to North Korea collectively. And it was the first time in North Korean history that the the people in one organization collectively defected from North Korea to South Korea. So after that incident, Kim Jong-un ordered that all university children of North Korean diplomat must be back to Pyongyang no later than the end of July of 2016. And my first son was not exception at all. At that time, he was in the London uh, the college and my son was also ordered to be back it was only you know a few months left
0: was it like a trap they would have the children back so that's you would be right. fe- yes, you would that's be scared right, fe- because
1: it was north korea's a uh, policy of taking the hostages of the children of north korean diplomats so my son must go back to uh, pyongyang immediately That, you know, the instruction actually made me very angry because, you know, as a father, we loved my children. I paid great attention on the education of my children. But when I learned that I could not do anything, you know, to let my son finish his education in London, you know, I thought that the North Korean system actually was not the system which I should continue to be loyal and at that time I, you know, try to think what kind of, you know, the life I spent in the past, what would be the future of my children in the future. And I concluded that the life of myself and my family were nothing but the current, you know, the slave. So I decided that I should cut off this kind of, you know, slave chain for my children and let my children be a free man, like the people in the free world.
0: Yes. So you make the decision to defect, obviously that's a decision that doesn't come lightly and there's lots of considerations, considerations for your family that are still back home in North Korea. Absolutely. We often hear of the families of people who do defect being imprisoned in work camps, so that's a consideration. I think what I'd like to know first is, what is the process you go through to defect? Because I guess there are only certain people you can talk to. You can't tell everybody. You have to go through quite a strict process to protect yourself and your
1: family. So can you talk me through that? Yes. First of all, we discussed about our plan of defection inside my family. At that time, you know, I was lucky with my wife and my children. They were all in London. So we discussed, and we had a little bit, you know, the family the debate, because, you know, the decision of defection was not so easy a decision, because we were very sure that if we defect from North Korea, then it would be a very difficult for my relatives and my brother and sister left in North Korea. But on the meanwhile, I cannot also persuade my sons to go back to North Korea because of the lives of my relatives or, I see, my sister and brother. So actually, I was in a very difficult dilemma at that time. So I decided to take all those responsibilities on me mm-hmm. because I, I was ready to take all those responsibilities because this is the decision made by me, not by my children. So I told my children that at my generation, if I do not cut off the chain of slavery to you, 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 you to my sons, then I think my sons in the future may be angry or maybe frustrated at me because you know we actually would lose a very good opportunity for freedom. You know so that is uh, one of the things we uh, decided to choose the second thing is that at that time i had a very good you know the relationship uh, with the, my colleagues and the embassy i had a very good relation with my ambassador my friends so we were actually you know friends but i knew very well if i would defect from North Korea to South Korea. It could be a very difficult period or time for my friends left in North Korea embassy in London. Maybe they would uh, suffer from very severe punishments. So I felt very sorry. But on the meanwhile, North Korea is a system that you can't open your mind. You can't tell, you know, friends your plans in advance. If you say, your honest plans to your friends, then who'd agree? Yeah. You know, that's why actually I kept my plan confidential away from my friends. So at that point, I still, you know, feel very guilty about my decision. And I feel very guilty that because of my defection, my friends actually suffered a very difficult, you know, the punishments in North Korea.
0: Are you aware of how your brother and sister are doing? Have you spoken to them? Do you
1: know their situation? No, actually, once I defected from North Korea, I lost all my contacts with my relatives and brother and sister, so I have not any information at all.
0: Okay. When you defected, is it a case of you go to the South Korean embassy? And you make an announcement. What is the actual process that's involved?
1: I made a very quiet departure from London because, you know, Britain still has a diplomatic relations with North Korea. And there are some British diplomats still working in British Embassy in Pyongyang. So I can't make it open about my defection in London because if it is, is publicized in London that North Korea would do anything mm-hmm. you know, in order to stop the, my journey to South Korea. For instance, you know, what happened between North Korea and Malaysia after the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. Yeah. North Korea, you know, all of a sudden detained all Malaysian diplomats in Pyongyang in order to release the body of Kim Jong-nam and North Korean diplomats det- detained by Malaysian government. So that kind of, you know, political or diplomatic the, the role would easily take place. So it was not my interest or the British to make, you know, open or public about my, you know, defection to uh, South Korea.
0: Was the assassination of Kim Jong-nam a surprise to you because he didn't seem to be actively involved in politics. He seemed to have rejected any interest in North Korea, any succession, and he seemed to live quite a quiet and independent life.
1: Oh, actually, it was not really a shocking surprise because Kim Jong-nam is a kind of subject of elimination in North Korean system because... Kim Jong-un, the current North Korean leader, always advocated that he is the only uh, possible successor of Kim dynasty. And majority of North Korean people, even so now, do not know the existence of Kim Jong-nam. And Kim Jong-nam is the first son of Kim Jong-il. And North Korea is a really a country based on Confucius cultures where the first son is always the one who succeeds, the family business. So North Korean people actually so far do not know whether Kim Jong-un is the last son or first son or whatever. So the physical existence of Kim Jong-nam itself pose a direct threat to Kim Jong-un.
0: It feels more like it poses a threat to his own insecurities and ego rather than any of his position as his brother didn't seem to have any interest in
1: yes. politics. Yes, you know, actually Kim Jong-nam did not have any influence in North Korean politics because he lost all those uh, the influence in North Korean the politics. So it seems that he does not have, did not have any influence uh, North Korean politics. But as I have said, the physical existence of Kim Jong-nam as the first son of Kim Jong-il is a threat. itself was a threat, you know, and it may create a kind of, you know, the future a threat to so-called legitimacy of Kim Jong-un.
0: And you being the most senior defector and now an enemy of the state and somebody who is now an activist to bring down the North Korean state, seeing the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, was that a shock to your system and a wake-up call that you had to, did you have to change your security?
1: Was it? Was that a scary thing to see? That's right, yes. You know, I think the world was shocked as well mm-hmm. because Kim Jong-nam was not short in. The streets at midnight, or whatever, he was just, uh, the killed, in an open place like international airport of Kuala Lumpur of Malaysia. The world has seen clearly how she was, you know, toxinated, and how she was killed by those hired foreign to young innocent girls. The world. Has seen it. So this shows that Kim Jong un does not hesitate to use any kind of means to eliminate his force. So that kind of, you know, the incident actually you know, made me a kind of, you know, the shock. So after that incident, my security in South Korea were further strengthened. As you have witnessed, now I'm in I mean, Taiwan. Tonight. That's right. I as soon as I, my arrival in Taiwan, I have been heavily protected, you know, by the securities. So that's why, you know, I think the assassination of Kim Jong-nam has given the world a kind of new lesson. And it's a kind of really a new alarming what the world should do to protect the people like me. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know. How dangerous is Kim Jong-un? And... Also, what do you make of the relationship that he's been building with Donald Trump? Do you see this as a positive or do you see this as some way validating what is a tyrannical regime?
1: Oh, to be honest, you know, uh, the Kim Jong-un is really a very intelligent guy. Uh, he is very young, but he knows very well how to deal with the president like uh, President Trump. President Trump is the president of the uh, United States who is supposed to lead the world for a kind of, you know, the better uh, the place. But the past one year and, you know, half uh, the history of the negotiation between North Korea and America seemed uh, not going well. Kim Jong-un announced its a new nuclear status in November of 2017. And now the world is going to face almost two anniversary of the official announcement by Kim Jong-un of his accomplishment of nuclear weapons ICBMs. But what the United States has achieved so far, no American has ever visited the nuclear sites or ICBMs of North Korea. North Korea even more intensified its nuclear capabilities. Even, for instance, you know, North Korea test fired its new short-range missile successfully. This year alone, North Korea tested ten times of its short-range nu- uh, the, the missiles, which exactly targeted the whole part of. South Korea. But from the part of America, President Trump continues to say that this continuation of missile test by Kim Jong-un does not pose any threat to America. And as long as North Korea does not test its nuclearized VM, President Trump seems happy with the current situation. And President Trump uh, always says that the nuclearization talk with North Korea or denuclearization pressures with North Korea would take a long time. So uh, these kind of, you know, new uh, the comments by President Trump or the recent, you know, the remarks by uh, President Trump give me a kind of, you know, a suspicion that whether President Trump is really interested in denuclearizing North Korea or he's only interested in uh, managing the current you know, North Korea's nuclear status in his own terms, for instance, if President Trump is not interested in the nucleus of North Korea, but he's only interested in just you know the managing of the current North Korea, and just he is just managing to persuade Kim Jong Un to stay on on his moratorium or nuclear tests or ICBMs in order to make a good environment for its re-election, then I think the world in the near future would accept North Korea as kind of, you know, the new nuclear state in this region. And I think that is really a dangerous, you know, the development in this area.
0: But what are the alternative options? Because sanctions have essentially failed. The North Korean government has found ways to generate income by exporting labor, through hacking, through various other means of, uh, and their trading relationship with China. So it feels like the only way to force something would be some type of preemptive military strike. It itself feels dangerous, but would you support that?
1: No. no. I would not support the military options by America. But, you know, the reason of the failure of economic sanction actually lies in the American current uh, the policy on sanctions. After the failure of Hanoi summit, it was really obvious that sanction really worked. So if Trump learned that Kim Jong-un is not interested in denuclearizing North Korea, then I think President Trump should add more sanctions in order to push North Korea to the corner of total you know the giving up of its nuclear program, but even after the Hanoi Summit, President Trump refused to take any additional sanctions against North Korea, and she was not so tough on China or Russia on the sanction regime. so the this year alone. America was not very serious or tough enough to ask China or Russia to take really a sincere obligation on sanctions. That was the main reason why Russia and China, you know, a little bit relaxed its policy of sanctions on North Korea. So mm-hmm. that's why I think in order to bring the Kim Jong-un for the third summit table, I think Trump is reluctant yeah. to engage more sanctions with North Korea. That is my private you know, assumption.
0: Yes, because with the labor camps in Russia, with the export of right. North Korean labor out into the labor camps in Russia, and the trading relationship between China and North Korea, sanctions feel ineffective if they don't have the support of Russia and China.
1: Right. Actually, you know, Kim Jong Un met a president. Putin in April, and he succeeded in persuading President Putin to extend those work permits for North Korean workers in Russia. In June, Kim invited Xi Jinping to North Korea. So that's why those work uh, permits extended in uh, China as well. So I think... It's time for America now to ask seriously Russia and China whether they're really you know a serious on the North Korea sanction regimes, but until now, American administration does not show any kind of you know tough actions on China or Russia. Would
0: you accept a denuclearized North Korea or is your goal bigger? Ultimately, are you looking to the downfall of the Kim dynasty and the end of Kim Jong-un and the implementation of four democratic processes within North Korea?
1: Uh, what I would like to say that the change of North Korea would take place in a long process. Okay. You know, in North Korean leadership as a whole, Kim Jong-un is the only leader with the uh, third generation. He is now in 30s. He's the only one of 30s while the people around him are all either over 60 or 70s, 80s. So there is a real generation gap between Kim Jong-un and the rest of the the leaders or associates around him. If we look back into the communist history in other parts of the world, for instance, Russia or Eastern Europe, the changes were only possible when third generation were in power. Gorbachev was the third generation of Russian Communist Party. That's why he tried to bring a kind of change in Russia, in former Soviet Union together with his colleagues. Most of them were in uh, third generations, but he failed. And the communism in Europe failed. Now we look back in China. Xi Jinping is the second generation. So when the second generation in communist, you know, the party, you can't expect any kind of great changes. So I think that as far as China is concerned, we have to wait another 10 or 20 years. If you look at North Korea, Kim Jong-un is 30s, but the people around him is 60s and 70s. So there are 30 years of generation gap. So I expect that when these 60s and 70s are retired and the new millennium generations and power and when they are in parallel with Kim Jong-un in power then that is the period where North Korea's you know the elite would try to change bring a change in North Korean system so you know in this age that the change of North Korea will take very slowly for instance if the end of Kim Jong-un regime in 10 years is maybe Too quick, but within twenty years, I am absolutely sure that we may see the different North Korea. And the purpose of my current activity is to educate the Millennium generation of North Korea for a possible change. I try my every, you know, the way to educate of the Millennium generation of North Korea.
0: And. What about a reunification of North and South to a single Korea? Do you think that's possible?
1: I think that is very possible. To me, the real push for reunification would come from North Korea, Mm -hmm. not from South Korea. Of course. Because the current South Korean population now are getting a little bit, you know, far away from the reunification process. The young generation in South Korea, they're only obsessed with their future jobs or whatever. But if you look at the reality of North Korea, the changes taking place in North Korea, the young generation in North Korea, they are very eager to know about the world.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: For instance, the demand for South Korean movies and dramas are very strong by North Korean young generations. That's why the process of smuggling these, the cultural contents from South Korea, you know, are going on to, you know, the new millennium generation of North Korea. So that's why I think within 10 and 20 years, the young generation of North Korea would demand, would stand up, not only the change of North Korea, but they want to be reunited with the South, South Korea. Because why? They want a kind of new future. And they think that if they are united with the South Korea, the economic wealth of South Korea would arrive at North Korea very easily. That is a kind of, you know, a dream.
0: So you see pop culture, therefore, as a trigger for a revolution.
1: Yes, that's right. Not only the pop culture, but outside information is to North Korea.
0: So the information getting into North Korea is hugely important. The smuggling of the thumb drives, the DVDs. Yes. And that is, I guess, I guess it's a conflict for people because they've grown up with the brainwashed utopian dream of the Kim dynasty of socialism. But they're seeing a different life. They're seeing people in South Korea who are living a free life. They're living a happy life. And, but it does come at great risk, right? The, The smugglers are smuggling content at great risk, even owning these thumb drives and DVDs and laptops, that's itself illegal.
1: Yes. But, you know, if we uh, look at the reality of North Korea objectively, the current North Korean system can be compared to a kind of socialist skeleton. Mm -hmm. The bones are still socialist systems, but the flesh of that system are becoming too capitalist. So the fleshes of North Korean system are getting more and more and capitalist, you know, the flashes. Now there are more than 400 capitalist black markets or open markets in North Korea. The people in North Korea are getting more and more used to capitalist mind of, you know, private trade rather than socialist centralized the planning economy. The young generation of North Korea have not seen the peak of socialist welfare system of North Korea. Because when they were born, the welfare system of North Korea were already gone. Mm-hmm. So they were grown up in a kind of, you know, black market systems. So the contents they learn in schools of so-called socialist welfare system were actually something they have seen. So that's why these young generations are different from you know, my generation, my generation, I was born in 1960s and I was grown up in a socialist welfare system. So I have seen the peak of North Korean system. But my son's generation, no. So that's why the quality and the content of North Korea's brainwash, you know, education actually does not reach the heart of the young generation of North Korea. And I think that is the point of the hope. So this is post the famine.
0: The emergence of black markets was post the, was it 1994 was the famine?
1: After 19, no. The famine actually started from 1995. But actually before 1995, there were a lot of strong symptoms of the famine.
0: Why has Kim Jong-un allowed the existence of the black markets? Because that seems like a or like crack in the system, a weakness for his you know control of his utopian dream. Is it because sanctions have worked
1: and he needs the black markets? Uh, even before the sanctions, because North Korean system tried very hard to stop this you see, evolution, but they failed. Whatever they did, they failed. For instance, I'll tell you one example. Mm-hmm. In 2009, North Korean system introduced the devaluation currency currency, reform. But after one month, it turned out to be a new failure. So the person who was responsible of this currency devaluation reform was openly shot in order to calm down the strong protest.
0: How did it fail? Because I've read before there was like a limit to like 100,000... You could transfer, but there were also protests about this.
1: Yes, because, you know, at that time, you know, North Korean system does not have any so-called, you know, the banking uh, deposit system. So they almost, is all the income of the people were kept in North Korean currency at their, you know, the houses. Yeah. But all of a sudden, when the government decided to devaluation of the currencies and there was a limit that each Member of North Korean society was only titled at the first stage to change one hundred thousand won. Then what would you do? Billions of you know the, the millions of North Korean won. It is nothing but a paper. So people were so much frustrated and were angry. You know they just throw that money to the bank, the door of the bank. They burn it or what? The people were just you know frustrated and outrageous. The government cannot control it.
0: But an open protest?
1: There was no any kind of, you know, a kind of open protest in the streets or demonstrations, but most of the markets were closed. So I tell you, for instance, if this is one bottle of water, before that devaluation reform, it was sold in the the market at the price of uh, 4,000 a bottle. But all of a sudden, one day, you know, the government announced devaluation, and the private vendors were forced to sell it at around forty-one. All of a sudden, from four thousand to forty-one, and those private vendors were not so sure whether this reform would arrive at success or not. So they kept all their, you know these mineral waters at the houses, not on the market. So the, the whole market was frozen. There were no goods. The people did not sell. So the market was dying all of a sudden. If the market was dying, where can you buy rice, vegetables, whatever? You know, so there was no any kind of interactions between private vendors and then you know, the customers. So that was really, you know, the end of North Korean system. So Kim Jong-il, then the leader of North mm-hmm. Korea, learned that that reform, you know, was going the wrong way. So he stopped it, and then he publicly, you know, executed the, the one who architectured it, and then he put everything into normal. So all of a sudden, after one month, all the prices, you know, just came back to its original ones.
0: But it seems, therefore, there are a, a number of cracks appearing in the Kim Jong Un regime. You know, I've read about over a million mobile phones now.
1: Right, around four million. It's four million now. Yes,
0: but it was a million within a year, right? And whilst they're restricted to North Korea, you can yes. have them modified to. Make external phone calls, I believe.
1: Yeah, you, know, you can't make it any kind of international calls. I was watching
0: a documentary today that said some people have been using it to make international calls. They've no, only it. foreigners. Ah. Yes,
1: if you uh, enter North Korea as a foreign tourist, then you are, would be asked whether you want to change your SIM card or not. And if you say yes, then you have to pay for that, you know, the very special SIM card to put it in. in your phone, and you would be privileged to use your North Korean mobile phone to have internet or wow. international call. But that kind of thing cannot be, you know, available to North Korean people. So
0: the documentary, I'll, I'll dig it out and show you because they talked about that. But we have seen the thumb drives. We have seen the spread of information, the availability of information. It seems to me there like there is an inevitability to a revolution amongst the youth within. Yes. How do you envisage that happening? How do you envisage the response to that? And what is Kim Jong-un's Achilles heel here?
1: Yes. You know, as I've said, that the, the now in North Korea, the power are at the hands of second generation. For instance, army generals and then the leaders of security forces, they're they are all, you know, second generation. That's why the millennium generation in North Korea knew very well that if they stand up, like a demonstration or whatever, if they stand up, they would be easily, you know, cracked down by the regime because the current power now are at the hands of second generation while the generation, third generation, demanding the change. So there, this kind of, you know, generation kind of, you know, the conflict, right? But if you wait another 10 or 20 years, then the third generation who were demanding the change are in power in the leading force. And then the same generation will demand the change. So if these, you know, millennium the generation demand the change, the same generation who are in power will not take that kind of very violent you know the reaction to crack it down so that is how really the changes you know it happened in the other part of the world
0: okay i really appreciate your time today i've got two final questions so my first final question is there is an opportunity for people to visit north korea yes. there are conferences now there's a blockchain conference which right. is within the sector i have experience in you can go and run the North Korean Marathon. you can go on heavily guided tours right. do you support the idea of people visiting and discovering sure. more? or you do or do, because I've heard the uh, I've heard people say if you are going, you are putting money in the pocket of the regime. Where do you sit with this?
1: No, I strongly support you see more visits by is outside world to North Korea. Of course, if you are in North Korea, some of the money will go to North Korean regime. But on the meanwhile, you know, you may disseminate more information to North Korea. The point is that, no, all the tourists are really, you know, heavily guided or minded by uh, North Korean demanders. Uh, so that's why I strongly suggest that all foreign tourists, who are in North Korea, should try their best to make a kind of human contacts with the North Korean people, even though there is a mind, but you should try to meet uh, and talk those, you know, the street people. If if they don't understand English, you try to as much as possible. and. It is very important for foreign tourists to give a kind of, you know, free world image. Yeah. You know, to North Korean the people. I think that kind of, you know, free image of foreign tourists would give a very positive influence on the North Korean society.
0: Okay, and my final question for you and it's a two-part answer. People who are going to be listening to this maybe have an interest in North Korea, maybe have an interest in finding out more what can any kind of normal general person do who's just listened to this, someone like myself, do to help support what you would like to see? And then added to that, what would you like to see from the international community?
1: Oh, first of all, I think the, the only change in North Korea could be made by educating the North Korean people. So that's why I think, and I strongly believe, that a uh, dissemination of outside informations are really really important, and we should also try our best to make a uh, human contacts by, for instance, uh, sending more visitors, foreign visitors to North Korea, or we should I uh, see try more investments on making very tailor-made contents for North Korean people to understand the outside world very easily, I think. This kind of, you know, building more human contacts and also dissemination of more information to North Korean people in order to educate them, I think would be the only solution for North Korean issues.
0: Okay, a final little question. Do you think uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer will still be Manchester United manager at the end of the season? Or do you think... Uh
1: Oh, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm not quite sure, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure whether, you know, Manchester uh, United, even Manchester City, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite sure they are really doing well, you know, these days. You know.
0: Have you ever, did you ever get to go to Old Trafford? Not yet. Well, if you ever come back to London oh, back to the UK, I will get us tickets. I'll, I mean, I'll have to get like 12 tickets for, right, for, for, right. Your, for yes. your security as well, but uh, we will go. Uh,
1: recent, recent days, I was a little bit, you know, frustrated to hear those, you know, racism issues. In, so why, why all of a sudden, you know, this racism issues happened in Premier League, you know? Premier League must be a kind of, you know, a model of, you know, the, the football world. But all of a sudden... It's a I, I, I really, I'm really sad with this kind of issue of racism you know.
0: it's, a, it's a minority of idiots it's a very small group it's not back in the game the game's moved on from that but it, it's like it's typical when something like that happens it, it creates headlines right but uh, no it's not there anymore oh, okay. but if you ever come I'll get you to a game but listen thank you so much for okay, you, you. I um, hope to see you again at a further conference and look best of luck with everything you do
1: okay thank you
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Defiance. I do want to say a big thank you to Mr. Tay for agreeing to meet me in Taiwan to discuss his story. And I also want to say a big thanks to the team at the Human Rights Foundation for helping coordinate this. I did find Mr. Tay's story fascinating. And if you would like to find out more about the work that the HRF is doing in North Korea, please head over to flashdrivesforfreedom.org. I just want to say thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com,
1: which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.